Marketing Sweats friends. It's Misty again, and I am excited today to talk to somebody that you guys might wonder why in the heck we're having on a marketing show. So his name is Peter Docker, and he is actually a former Royal Air Force senior officer, and he's been a force commander during combat and flying operations all over the world. So as you get to know him, you're going to find that he has awesome experience in the military, managing crises, situations, but he also has a ton of sort of business background. He's consulted in organizations like oil and gas and construction and mining, and even some of the other sort of quality of life areas Samantha serves, such as pharmaceuticals, banking, etc. So you're going to find that he has really well-rounded, rich experience. He has traveled extensively, but the reason I have him in show is none of that. Years ago, I met one of his good friends, David Mead. He was actually a episode we did on season two. In fact, I've been told some of people's favorite episodes were in season two, so I encourage you to check that out. At the time, David introduced me to Peter and said he was in the midst of writing a book. It was called Leading from the Jump Seat. And so I got Peter to come on the show and talk a little bit about the concepts in the book. He tells lots of stories on this episode. You're going to learn a lot about him and how he thinks. And I think you're going to take away so many nuggets of wisdom that you're going to be able to apply like tomorrow. So definitely buckle in because it's going to be a ride, but it was super inspiring and I can't wait to see you on the other side. Well, Peter, welcome to the Marketing Sweats Podcast. Super excited to have you. Well, I'm delighted to join you, Misty. It's a a thrill to be with you. Awesome. Awesome. Well, as I noted to you via email, I'm going to have all kinds of questions about the book, but let's start with your story. I want to be honest with you. When I read about you the first time and actually heard about the book, I was like, what am I going to have in common with a pilot, right? But certainly the, the leadership trends and themes that you talk about in the book resonated, but give us some background on you. Well, good heavens, I'm old. I'm 59. <laughs> I wouldn't um, say that. <laughs> a lot of my time, my real career started in my early 20s when I, I joined the Royal Air Force as an officer and a pilot. And I served for 25 years in the Royal Air Force. And during that time, good heavens, I was fortunate. I was flying around the world, as in literally flying myself around the world, flying big transport airplanes. At the age of 25, I was selected to be one of the pilots for our prime minister, which was a great honor and surprises me now, looking back, good heavens, at the age of 25, but there we are. I got promoted and started to to lead people. One of the highlights and greatest challenges, I guess, was as a squadron commander and leading elements of three squadrons during the 2003 Iraq war. And we're flying large air refueling aircraft, so we carried gas to refuel fighter jets. We're undefended. Once you get promoted to a certain level, you no longer fly. You're looking after the people who fly. And in that capacity, oh, good heavens, I was a negotiator for Russia. This is when the Berlin Wall came down. I negotiated with your State Department, a couple down from Condoleezza Rice on export licensing. I ran a $20 billion program. I taught at the Defense College on leadership. But then after about 25 years, I thought there's more I could do. So I left and I joined a a consulting group, had nothing to do with flying, nothing to do with military, but everything to do with people. And we spent our time working in high-risk industries in construction, mining, and oil and gas, where people typically got killed or injured during work. And we helped to create cultures and leadership where everyone went home safe. 
So I did that for about three years, working in places like Kazakhstan and the Middle East and Africa, which was exciting. But then after about three years, I thought there's more I could do. And it was around about that time <laughs> that I came across Simon Sinek's TED Talk video of Start With Why. Long story short there, I connected with Simon through David Meads, actually, who was answering emails for Simon at the time. And that started a relationship that lasted about seven or eight years and had the privilege of helping him take his message around the world. And I think in my time, I've visited about 93 countries. Oh, my goodness. That's crazy. But about two and a half years ago, I thought, there's more I can do. <laughs> so for me, that's resulted in the book that you've already kindly mentioned, Leading from the Jump Seat, How to Create Extraordinary Opportunities by Handing Over Control. And that brings me to you and here today. So <laughs> what an awesome story. Well, we have a couple things in common as I hear that those industries that you've worked in in the past of construction and mining and oil and gas, we're actually a marketing agency that serves those industries. So very cool. And then I love the fact that you have that why work in your background. And there's the clear line for me from your why, which if I read it correctly, is enable people to be extraordinary at what they do, leading to a warehouse of possibility. I love that. And it seems like the book is an extension of that. Is that fair? Absolutely. With this book, I wanted to bring together everything I've learned from the wonderful opportunities I've had through my life and the people I've met. And I wanted it to reflect as well, having come across so many different cultures and different languages and people, I'm a firm believer that what brings us together is so much more than what keeps us apart. And I think that's a great message of hope actually, particularly in our world at the moment, where often we focus on what divides us rather than what brings us together. So uh, yes, it's a deeper dive into leadership about how we can lift others up and how we can ensure things that are deeply important to us carry on after we've taken a step back. Well, anybody who joins the show that has written a book, I just deeply admire. That's a future goal of mine. It's something I'm working on. And what, what is amazing to me about your book, like I said, Peter, I didn't expect to like it as much as I did. You have this ability to document what I think are just inherent leadership principles, but you made them really practical and wrote them down. <laughs> and I think sometimes when we have that experience of being able to name what we know, and you even reflect on it at the end of your book about what a sort of cathartic process I mean, you, you can look at the book and there's a picture of a big aircraft on the front and things all about flying. Actually, it's not. And it's also not just about running a business, a big business or a small business or anything in between. It actually touches on one of the greatest leadership challenges that many of us face, and that is being a parent. And when I gave you my run through of all of the things that I've, I've done over my years. For 33 of those years, I've been married to my wife, Claire, and we have two grown up children. And I learn a lot from them now. Let's start at the beginning and give people context of even what leading from the jump seat means and the metaphor that you use based on the story you tell out of the gate. I'll tell you from a personal standpoint, that really grabbed me from the beginning because I'm a new owner of my company and it's very hard to like hand over the reins when you've been a doer for a very long time. And then this idea of doing nothing, it struck me and so much so, Peter, that I read that chapter to my executive team yesterday because we're all dealing with that at different levels of leadership. So talk a little bit about what inspired you to make that the theme of the book and give our listeners some background. 
as I mentioned, I spent a lot of my flying career flying large passenger jets, about the size of a 767 of the sort. I was a senior pilot, and I had the privilege of doing the final certification of this young guy, Callum, who'd been a co-pilot or a first officer for, for many years and had just completed six months of training to equip him to become a captain, the, the person in charge of the overall safety and operation of the aircraft anywhere in the world. And so I sat on the, the jump seat, which is a third seat on most large aircraft on the flight deck, usually empty, but qualified crew members can sit there. And when you're strapped in, you can literally touch the two pilots in front of you. That You're that close. So I, I strapped in, we fired up, we tacked it out, and we lined up on the runway. It was our turn to get airborne. And we thundered down the runway. And around about 300, 400 feet above the ground, we'd just taken off. We had an emergency. Callum was wrestling with the controls, trying to keep us away from the ground. Now, in that moment, in the sort of two seconds, maybe less of thinking time, what I chose to do in that moment would fundamentally affect the outcome of that situation. And this is where the temptation to grab control really kicks in because, you know, I was the most experienced guy on the aircraft. Your life is on the line together with the 140 people behind you. But here's the thing. I did absolutely nothing. I sat there with my hands in my lap, perfectly calm. I knew that Callum could sort this out. If I had any doubts, I would have had no business certifying him the day before. All I needed to do in that moment was not to lead, but become a great follower. Callum needed to feel that I had his back. And when each of us feels that others have got our back, that gives us the confidence to step up and be who we need to be in the moment. Now, I'm sat here talking to you now, so obviously it all worked out. You can read the rest of the, the, the book. But this struck me as <laughs> in business, in life, at some stage, it is inevitable that we hand over control. It's inevitable. As the CEO of a company, you will eventually retire. If you're a team leader, chances are you'll move on to another team. And, well, going back to parenting, eventually our kids grow up, leave home, and start to lead their own lives. So it's inevitable. Leading from the jump seat is all about, well, how do we embrace that inevitability? We lift people up and prepare them to lead because it turns out when we do that, we have extraordinary opportunities that present themselves and extraordinary performance in the moment right now. And jump seat leadership is not about retaining or increase our own power. It's about empowering others. So that was the catalyst for the title of the book. And everything in the book is how-to guides of how we can adopt these practices. Drawn from experience, it's not an academic book. This is deep experience 
Well, your stories are great too throughout. I mean, I loved reading the application of those things. And I know that at the end of every chapter, you have sort of this four stages of jump seat leadership, learning to fly, flying, teaching others to fly, and then of course, leading from the jump seat. And so certainly as I read those, I could feel my experiences growing as a leader, right? Starting from learning to fly. But then now in my current role, I feel like I'm learning to fly again, right? And you make that point that at different stages of your career, you can be at different stages of your leading from the jump seat journey. Yeah, I wanted the ideas in the book to be easily applied regardless of where we are on our journey. So I've carried forward the the flying metaphor, but learning to fly is what we all do at times. We're trying to figure it out. When we're much younger, perhaps going late teens or going to college or university or starting our first job, it's about discovering what's deeply important to us. What really matters? What are those non-negotiables? Because that gives us the energy and the foundation on which to move forward into the unknown. But then perhaps we get our first job and we're doing really well at it because we've been hired for the skills that we have. And that's when we're flying or in flow. But then we'll get promoted. And the focus then turns to teaching others to fly so they can be better. And then eventually when we become senior, we take that step back where we're leading from the jump seat. But to pick up on your point, Misty, what I I find is fascinating is that we can indeed be at different stages in different areas of our life. So, for example, the one person I mentioned in the book, which, well, he's one of the greatest leaders I've ever had the privilege of working with, a guy by the very grand title of Lieutenant General Sir James Dutton, KCB, CBE. This fella, he's been knighted by the Queen, which is a big thing, not once, but twice. He led British and American forces during the 2003 Iraq War, and he's one of the most humble folks you could ever come across. And he hasn't changed one bit, except he's now retired. So whilst he's been for years leading from the jump seat, he's now back to learning how to fly because he's figuring out what life is going to look like for him now. And he has the the humble confidence to recognize that he's got to learn and he's got to invite others to, to help him. And that's exactly what he's doing. So, yes, we can be at different stages in different areas of our life all at the same time. And I think for me, I'm definitely in the space of like, when you talk about learning to fly and you talked about sort of learning what's important to us, that changes over time and sort of what being in the flow means, right? As we learn different skills and want to practice those. Everything that we do in life that's deeply important to us is driven by one of two things. It's driven either by fear or it's driven by love. We can delve deeper into that, but let me talk about what I mean by really important to us. I'm not talking about your latest iPhone or or paycheck or whatever. No, deeply important. So for many of us, family is important. And for me, for an example, another non-negotiable, as I call them, is my belief in mutual respect. We find that these build that reservoir. So when we're leading ourselves or leading others in really challenging situations where we don't know the answer, where we're stepping into uncertainty, these non-negotiables or stands, what we stand for, becomes the, the handrail, the guide to help move us forward.
Well, I told you, I think, as we were sort of exchanging notes before this call, that the ideas of fear and love struck me to my core in the sense that I wasn't expecting you to write about that, number one. But number two, I think we all sort of respond out of fear so much in our day-to-day. And you elevated for me this idea of respond versus react out of love. And so I've been wrestling with that. And I stood up in front of my executive team yesterday and I said, guys, here's some of my fears. I fear losing control. I fear losing relationships. I fear losing line of sight to the business, right? But here's how I'm going to respond out of love to be able to let you lead from the jump seat. And so I really took your lessons to heart and tried to model that sort of vulnerability because I want them to learn how to use that language with their team. That's fantastic. It really is, Missy. And thanks for sharing that with me. And well, just to expand that a little, you know, fear arises when we sense that our life is on the line. And, you know, it's a primeval reaction to do the, the, the freeze, flight or fight because we've got to preserve our life. But thankfully for most of us, most days, that isn't the cause of fear. Fear is also triggered when we sense that our livelihood, our status or our reputation is under threat. And the trouble is when those are the triggers, fear doesn't tend to serve us very well at all. Because then fear can often show up as, well, anger at one extreme or timidity at the other. It can have us focused just on ourselves rather than others. We see the world as a place of scarcity, you know, win-lose. And we've got to win and everybody else has got to lose. And that generates not great decisions. It really doesn't. And ultimately, the worst Well, symptom of that is when we act based on ego, which is Greek for I. You know, it's all about me. But here's the thing, and what you've just articulated and discovered, we have a choice. We always have a choice. And that choice is to see fear as a warning flag, not to react, but to respond and respond instead by choosing the context of love. I talk about love a lot too. I have sort of a side gig where I talk about self-love and how that applies to organizations. And it can be kind of a touchy-feely thing to talk about, but it it is so important. I mean, there's entire disciplines out there talking about leading through love. And I just think it's awesome that you brought that into your work. Well, I think it's so important. And this is sometimes where I, I just bring my military background in to inoculate against people thinking that it's is warm and fuzzy and all the rest of it. No, people step forward to put themselves in harm's way as they did for me during the Iraq war, not because of any political thing generally, far from it, actually, never about that. It is about taking care of those to the left and right of them. It comes from a, a place of love. That's why we do it. So moving into the business context, love looks like an attitude of mind, first of all. It's a, a view of the world, not of scarcity, but of possibility and opportunity. And rather than focusing on ourselves, we intentionally focus on others, the people in our team and those that we serve through the work that we do. And importantly, rather than being led by ego or driven by ego, we embrace what I refer to as humble confidence. And humble confidence is about, well, first of all, the confident bit, it's about recognizing our our own strengths and being absolutely resolute where we're heading, absolutely resolute, and being ready to take the decisions when they need to be made, but then having the humility to listen. And what goes along with that is learning to lead when we don't know the answer. And this is really important 
in times of uncertainty or crisis. We're so used to being the, the person who's being promoted because we know the answer to the challenges we face. But that becomes a constriction, a limitation. And when we have the, the humble confidence to instead focus not on the answers, but asking the important questions, we then open up to the collective genius of our team to help figure out where we're going and what the answers are. And that accelerates us so much more quickly than if we have to be the person with the answers. But we cannot take that approach unless we have humble confidence. And we cannot have humble confidence unless we're sourcing ourselves from a place of love. Yes. Well, I know you talk about the idea of the collective genius, which I'm a facilitator as well. So that was after my heart because I always believe my ideas get better when I can integrate that of others. This idea of be yourself and be authentic. I mean, I've been working on that, right? Just standing up and, and naming and not trying to be anybody else. You tell an awesome story in the book about how you had a leader that you were trying to emulate and it just didn't feel real. And so I'd love for you to share that a little bit as well as maybe how you apply that filter of integrity over top of authenticity because that was a, a new idea for me too. What you refer to is a time where I, I kind of screwed up really, but the value of screwing up is learning. It was when I had just taken over command of a squadron and that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, the squadron that I took command of was 101 Squadron of the Royal Air Force. It had been formed in 1917. And the people who had gone before me, dating all the way back to, to then, you know, were very established, impressive people. And the guy I took over from, a, a chap called Ian, I saw him as a great leader. You know, everybody, he was quite charismatic and very effective at his job. And I thought, how on earth can I follow this? And it was perhaps more subconscious than conscious, but the result was I kind of tried to emulate him. And of course, it didn't work out terribly well because it wasn't me. And people who knew me suddenly felt they no longer knew me. And they didn't know how to relate to me. And when that happens, of course, trust breaks down and it turns not to go well. So it took me about six months to, to figure that out, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, I relaxed into being who I am, better or worse. You know, it's, it's just who I am. As someone wants that everybody else is taken. So just be yourself. That links to that authenticity and integrity piece. There is a lot spoken in leadership circles these days around being authentic. And that's great, but there, there was always an element of that that made me a bit uncomfortable. And I acknowledge Seth Godin here, who on one of his podcasts, he addressed this and he said, a four-year-old child's authentic. If they're hungry, they scream and cry. If they're tired, they'll scream and cry. You know, we've all been there. But by the time we reach maybe 10 or 11, we lose the right to be authentic. We've got to put a filter in. And that filter is integrity. I truly believe that as a leader, we all have a responsibility to use that filter of integrity and be the person that we need to be for our people. So good. And are there circles in which you can be more authentic and vulnerable 
than others. I, this is a conversation we have with our leadership team a lot that, you know, when we're together, our fears can be out on the table and we can maybe react more than respond. But then, you know, we want to present that sort of united front and that calm confidence that you're talking about outwardly. So how has that shown up in your world? That's a really great question. I'll put it in the context of my military time as a squadron commander. As a squadron commander, you're the boss of the squadron, if you like, the CEO. And I had my my first layer of management, if you like, called squadron yeah, flight commanders. And these were my inner circle of advisors, if you like. And so what vulnerability looked like then would be we'd be facing a challenge, whatever it happened to be. And I call them in and say, right, guys, this is what we got. What do you think? These are some concerns I have. What do you see that I'm not seeing? Importantly, what do you pick up from the people across the squadron, the people on the front line, as it were? What do you hear? What are their concerns? And I would get that input. So vulnerability looked like making it clear that I wasn't the only one with the answers. Absolutely. Well, I love that philosophy. You know, you you share actually on your website this idea that 100% of an organization's frontline problems are known by the frontline. And then you go on to give additional data about how every layer you go up, right? Those problems are less known. And I think that's really good awareness for me as the leader of my organization. And I think too, the other thing I want to ask you about that is you talk about the concept of noise and filtering out that noise. And I can only imagine your military experience gave you a ton of perspective on that. But the point that resonated with me is that if you can do that and have that clear vision and communicate it with clarity, because that's something I've struggled with. And I'm sure you've had to do that countless times. I can't imagine giving orders, right, in the military, providing the context so that people can embrace them, but also being really decisive and clear. So talk about how that relates back to business. So whether you're in the military or elsewhere, it's all about people. The only thing about the military and flying is that there's a certain edge to it because people's lives are on the line. I talked about love and fear. I like things in twos, clearly. Content and context, those are the only two things in the world. You know, content is stuff that we do, things that we say, but it has no meaning whatsoever unless we have context. Context is like the, the picture on the jigsaw puzzle box. All the puzzle pieces are your content, but they make no sense whatsoever without the context of the picture on the box. So if we're in the senior role, at the, the top of the tree of any company, no matter how large, we need to attend to making that context as vivid, that picture on the box, if you will, as vivid as possible. Because unless that context is there, the people who are trying to organize the, the puzzle pieces don't know how to do it. They can't figure it out. So that aligns with the notion of identifying the signal from the noise. Again, trying, <laughs> I don't want to stretch the metaphor too far, but all those puzzle pieces, it can be noisy. You don't know what you're looking at. And so you need to get the signal. The signal in this example is that picture on the puzzle box. And people can then latch onto that, make everything else fit. So I talk about the need to either um, create the context, illuminate it, or shift it. And sometimes we need to shift the context. And sometimes in business, in life, we need to turn those puzzle pieces over and find that fresh context and then illuminate it for our people who can then gather around.
Well, you talk about these practices of jump seat leadership, and I think it's interesting of even how you ordered them because I see so connect so many connections. You talk about commitment, and then you talk about humble confidence, which you mentioned, and then belonging at the end. And so if you lead through love with those values, you practice that confidence, people are going to want to be a part of this, right? Yeah. I mean, the, you mentioned the, these are the order that I put them in, and it's really important because if we choose to lead other people, then we need to figure out what we're about first. And that goes back to the earlier part of our conversation, Mr. where I was talking about figuring out what's deeply important to us, our non-negotiables. And I put in the book how we go about that. The clues are in the choices that we make in life. And there's quite a few stories of examples where I learned my non-negotiables. And when we put those into words, they become stands in life, the things that we stand for. We might add to those stands during our lifetime as we have different experiences and different careers, but these are unshakable. These are more fundamental than values. Values ain't as fixed as people like to think they are. We all might think we're very courteous, but heck, if you need to, to get to the, uh, the, the mail office just before it closes or to an important business meeting, and you get to the parking lot, there's only one space left, and you can see someone out the corner of your eye also hunting for a space, you grab that space. You might feel bad about it afterwards, but you grab it. So there you go. Your value of courtesy isn't as fixed as you might like to think it is. But our non-negotiables are stands. They are fixed. And it gives us that handrail to then build commitments. And a commitment is when we put our stands into action. All the commitment is... And everything a commitment is, is a promise we make to ourselves. That's it. You and I can have a contract, but we can always find out a way of getting around that contract if we want to. A commitment is when we promise ourselves that we're going to follow through. So to follow through have, on what we stand for, right? Yeah, what you stand for. You can have lots of stands, but the commitment is putting those stands into action. And then building on that foundation, we then have the opportunity to lead with humble confidence, which is linked to that notion of vulnerability, of being willing to put your hand up and say, look, I don't know the answer here, but let me tell you why we've got to figure it out. Let me paint that picture on the box, and then you get that collective genius to help you figure it out. But then the last practice is the notion of belonging. And our role is to nurture, as leaders, is to nurture that sense of belonging. Why? Because when people feel that they belong, they will step up and take responsibility for action. And they will go beyond often what we're asking them to do. And that creates a very dynamic, sustainable environment and culture. And the way we nurture that belonging is we show that we care. And we can talk more about that. But yeah, these are the three critical practices of jump seed leadership. I love that you use the word care. I have a business partner that retired at the end of last year, and, and she said, you must see that the culture of Samantal really started to change when we stopped calculating the cost of caring. And I loved that phrase that she used because I did see a change in our staff. And so far, we've talked about all the positive ways that you can do that, create that belonging. Talk a little bit about, though, when times are tough, because you tell stories in the book about difficult conversations, performance issues, and how to lead through love in those situations. Yeah. First of all, showing that we care, it doesn't necessarily need to take much. It just needs to take a little bit of our time, which can be fleeting. It's linked to my notion that, well, 
all of us often want to be significant in life in terms of making a difference. And in my experience, the times when I've made the greatest difference to other individuals have been those fleeting moments, those tiny, small moments that maybe I've already forgotten about, but have a lasting impact on those other individuals or that person. And so if you want to be significant, think small. And the context of caring, small can be spending five, 10 seconds as you pass someone in the corridor or at the water cooler or wherever it happens to be and checking in with them, being genuinely curious about them as a human being, not just going through the mouth music, but be genuinely curious how their life is going, what challenges they've got. Is there anything that they need so they can do the job better? And showing an interest in them. Do you think that comes naturally to everyone to show that curiosity? No, it doesn't. Hey, none of us are perfect. And this book is not about being perfect. It's about recognizing that we're all human and there are days when we wish we could have done better. But the important thing is not those individual data points. It's the trend over time. And where are we sourcing ourselves from? Are we sourcing ourselves from a place of fear or a place of love? That's what's important. And when it comes to caring and spending a few moments with people, being genuinely curious, and that I think it's easier to say to someone, practice being curious than it is to say to someone, practice caring for another person, you know? So it's something that we can learn and something we can be mindful of when we're very, very busy as a senior person to remember that actually those fleeting moments have a disproportionate effect on how people feel, how they sense that they belong to the organization, and therefore the time, effort, and energy they're willing to put in. So really, really important. Yeah. It was interesting. You tell a story about when you were reprimanded, but then when you had to turn around and sort of address a performance issue of two pilots working for you. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we all make mistakes. There's a story in the book where I was flying. I messed things up a little bit as we we're flying into Brunei over into the, in the, the Far East. No one was hurt, but it was hugely and professionally embarrassing. Yeah. And I was the first officer at the time, and the captain by the wonderful name of Jimmy Jewell. What a fantastic name. You know, the way he responded, he could have reacted in one way, which would have completely pricked my balloon of confidence. But he chose to take a different approach. I won't spoil the, the story for people. But what I learned from that is when people under our care make an error, provided they're coming, they're sourcing themselves from the right place and feel regret for what they've done, that's important too. It's an opportunity for us to turn that moment into one that spirals up or spirals down. And if we choose the latter where we react, we perhaps get angry, that's a spiral down moment. And it can take weeks, months, or maybe even never for that person to recover. And you've just trashed all of the, potentially trashed the relationship and all the development you've done with them. But you can also look at that moment as an opportunity to spiral up. Such a good reminder that the way we respond, right, can really lead to that long-term loyalty.
I do have one final question for you on the belonging section. And it relates back to the story you told at the beginning about Callum, where you did nothing. You use a different analogy at the end of the book about four red lights. Explain the difference between leading from the jump seat and the four red lights moment. So the four red lights moment is, (laughs) it's about when to take back control. And see, that's my question, because in your gut as a leader, at least how I feel, I can feel that building up from my gut, right? Something's not right. Something's not right. Something's not right. Do I say something? If I say something now and they don't take my advice, do I say it again? So like, when do you do nothing? It's hard, this stuff, isn't it, Misty? It is so hard. (laughs) Yes, it's not easy. People think leaders know what they're doing. We don't. We're trying to figure it out, right? Absolutely. That's why you need things like I've written about to act as that handrail to guide us. But so the four red lights moment, what I mean by that is it relates to a story in the book where I was the captain of the aircraft and I had a fairly junior first officer with me. And he, let's call him uh, John, he was flying into uh, flying the aircraft on the approach into Gander in Newfoundland, where the weather can be a little bit tricky. And it was a bit blowy, a bit gusty that day. We're quite a long way out, but we could see the runway. And when you're flying an approach in a big aircraft to a large airport, typically on either side of the runway, you have what are called the PAPIs, the Precision Approach Path Indicators. And all these are, it's just four lights, horizontal row, four lights. And they can shine either red or they can shine white. Now, when you're approaching the airfield, when you're flying at the correct slope, glide slope as it's known, making the correct angle of attack onto the or angle on the approach, you will see two red lights and two white. If you see three white lights and one red, it means you're going too high on the approach. If you see three red lights and one white, you're going too low. And if you see four red lights, you're way too low. Now that's not good because you could land short of the runway, you could hit an obstacle on the approach to the airport, you know. So two red and two white, those are your friends. You need a hang on to those. And so as John flew this approach, I was monitoring him because that's the, the job of the, the pilot not flying. And it started off as two red and two white lights. You know, all good. Thumbs up. But then I started to see three red lights and one white. In other words, he was going low. So I called it out. I said, going low on the approach. He acknowledged verbally. But what he should have done then is to apply a little bit more power on the throttles with the engines, and that would have corrected our approach, and we would have regained the correct glide slope, as it's known. But he didn't. He acknowledged what I'd said, but he took no action. So I let it go a little longer, and then I started to see it going from three reds to four red lights. And that's when, in the words of Spock from Star Trek, the needs of the many begin to outweigh the needs of the few or the one. In other words, I had a responsibility for the 140 people on board. And at that stage, I called out again, going well below the glide slope. John acknowledged, but he didn't take action. And I reached across and just pushed the throttles forward, calling it out as I did so, just to put a bit more extra power on. He still had control, but I put that extra power on. And we regained the correct approach. We landed safely and it was all good. So when I say, what is your full red light moment? What I mean by that is in business, in life, when you're leading a team 
and you can see it not going quite the way you'd, you'd want it to go. Your four red lights moment is the point at which, if you allow it to continue, you do not have the skill or capability to recover the situation. That's the key. And you need then to intervene and take action. But you need to do so in a way that isn't going to prick the balloon of confidence of the other person. One of the other key things is, does it really matter? Right. <laughs> does it really matter? Ask yourself that question, yes. Absolutely. Because eight, maybe nine times out of 10, it doesn't matter. We are reacting perhaps to our ego, kicking it. Yeah, so we need to question that. That's the right moment. We'll get back to the rest of the interview in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Samantha. I happen to know a thing or two about them because, well, I'm one of the owners. We are an industrial consumer marketing firm with an obsessive focus on customer experience. We create killer campaigns, but we also help organizations create programs that align back to their business strategies. Most importantly, we have a lot of fun and love what we do. And this year marks 40-ish years of doing it. Unfortunately, there's not enough time to explain the ish on this promo. But if you know us, you'll know it makes perfect sense. And if you don't, please reach out. We'd love to talk. Or you can head to samantle.com slash blog to learn more about us with articles, tips and tricks, do-it-yourself tools, and much more to help you keep learning and growing right alongside us. Peter, I could ask you questions all day because there's so many good, rich concepts in this book. And I know we're running short on time, but I do want to take our last few minutes here and talk about how you've talked about parenting at the beginning and the Suzuki motorcycle story I love with your son, because I'm going to use that one as my girls get older. But just in reflecting and writing this book, I appreciated how you thanked everyone. That was a real modeling of, I know, what your values are and what you stand for. I guess just give us some life lessons, things that maybe you haven't already shared that you definitely want to leave us with and how you've taken these lessons and maybe become a better parent or a better human so that we can take your advice into our future days ahead. Mm. Well, thank you for all that, Misty. And yes, the writing of the book, first of all, was an exercise in lifting up others. I didn't take the easy route. I formed my own publishing company because I knew I had people who wanted to be on board, who would be stretched and accomplish more by helping to get this book out. So something I do mention in the book, but I'll go on beyond what I've said in the book, and that is the importance of being a guardian of hope. As a leader, hope is more powerful than optimism. Optimism looks like, uh, oh, it'll all be over by the new year or all be over by spring. And then those times come and it's, nothing's changed and it ebbs away. But hope is there will be an after. And that unshakable belief. And when we're leading teams, we need to hang on to that hope because that's the crucible for innovation and energy in our people. Well, Peter, you've inspired me today. I feel like I needed that message of hope. I feel like I'm going to pass it on to my organization. And again, I just, I can't thank you enough for making time to share with us today. I hope we can keep in touch. I do too. And Misty, I just want to acknowledge you. You've been a fantastic host. It's been an absolute delight. So thank you very much. Indeed. Absolutely. Well, I just loved 
loved getting to know Peter, both personally and professionally. I love that his lessons can extend beyond business, but into life. Like I said, I'm going to take his lessons and definitely use them in my parenting strategies. If you didn't catch the name, his book is called Leading from the Jump Seat, and you should be able to Google it and find it, connect with him on LinkedIn. Like I said, this is more of a how-to guide than anything. He's going to walk you through at the end of every chapter exactly how to apply these principles no matter where you are in your career. And as a reminder, if you do like what you heard today, please check out all episodes of season five on our marketingsweats.com website. You can download episodes, you can subscribe, you can leave us a review. And I really want to thank all of you, especially those of you who've been listening for so many seasons now. It's amazing the little community we've created here. And I hope you enjoyed Peter. Thanks again. 